0: From the library of Maria Menounos, this is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. Hey guys, welcome back to Book Circle Online. I'm your host, Jeffrey Masters, and I'm here today with Katie Gilmartin. Katie is a writer, artist, and historian, and her new book is called Blackmail, My Love. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. Yeah, of course. It was a good thought. It was great. (laughs) I'm so glad you enjoyed it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, For everyone at home, it's a murder mystery set in 1950s San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What was it about that time that made you want to set the story there?
1: Oh, what a good question. So I think of the 1950s as sort of the dark ages of queerdom because, um, you know, The medical profession, the legal profession, you know, the police, educational system, everything was, you know, the understanding was homosexuality is a mental illness. Right. Um, so it was a really, really, really hard time to be queer. Um, and obviously various places around the country and the world, it still is. Um, but I think for me, the fifties sort of epitomized that level of oppression. And yet there were, there was also fabulous, you know, counterculture going on. There were, you know, there was wonderful drag culture in the 50s drag queens didn't yet pantomime. Uh, they didn't, they didn't lip sync. Um, they sang. Yeah. And, um, there's fabulous drag culture. So much of the camp culture that we have today, a lot of, um, queer slang, old queer slang, like the term friends of Dorothy. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Um, that comes
0: from the late 40s, 50s. Okay. Was there a reason you specifically chose 1951?
1: 1951, yeah, was important. Um, so there's a legendary, um, cafe in San Francisco. Called the Black Cat Cafe, Uh, everyone went there. Longshoremen, uh, beat poets, uh, drag queens, prostitutes—it was—it was just this really rich, diverse mix of people, and. And uh, so in 1951, uh, the California um, Board of Equalization tried to close the Black Cat Cafe down because it was a gathering place for homosexuals. So the owner, Sol Stuman, who's heterosexual, at first said, we don't have homosexuals there. There's no homosexuals there. And then he talked to a lawyer and the lawyer said, you know, maybe we should take this as a civil rights case that homosexuals have a right to gather oh, wow. like other citizens have a right to gather. So at first they the rulings were against them and they ended up uh, appealing it all the way to the california supreme court and the california supreme court ruled in 1951 that homosexuals have a right to gather oh wow which is a really really early landmark case very remarkable even the reasoning behind it was was is very very interesting um the court based its ruling on an oklahoma uh court case which ruled that um, it's legal to um, provide housing to prostitutes as long as no illegal activity takes place there. And the ruling reason that prostitutes are human beings and therefore it's legal to provide lodging. Oh, so, that's a good point. So, human <laughs> exactly. So the the uh, the California Supreme Court ruling reasoned that homosexuals are human beings, very kind of them, and therefore it you know it's not illegal to serve them food or alcohol as long as no illegal activity was going on. And that was the a critical piece because the police said, you know, suddenly the police were accustomed to being able to basically ex- accept graft in exchange yeah. for not harassing, uh, not not um, raiding places. So suddenly with this ruling the police didn't have this wonderful opportunity for money coming in and they were not happy about it. So since the ruling said as long as no illegal activity is going on, they focused on that part. And what they look for is men dancing with men, women dancing with women, a man putting his hand on the knee of another man, yeah. that was reason for locking everybody out, hauling everybody out and locking them up. So what the police did is they began to not only look for, but encourage and entrap people. So there was this, in 19, after 1951, because of the ruling, there was this beautiful flowering of bar culture. There were more lesbian and gay bars in San Francisco in 1952, 3, 4 than there are today.
0: Oh, and really? Yeah. <laughs> That astonishing wow. yeah yeah it makes you it, choke. Yeah. you can't believe it it's also like amazing too like the they weren't segregated it wasn't like gay bars on lesbian bars
1: correct yeah there was there was a lot more community and, and you know in part it was because there had to be you know there yeah. there had to be um so unfortunately what the police did is then we actually have police records that show that they found their youngest, cutest recruits and taught them to affect homosexual mannerisms and go in and basically encourage people to do things that were at the time illegal, um, you know, smooch on the cheek um, yeah. between men. And that then gave them valid reason to round everybody up and wow. up again. So for me, that was just like such an interesting era to think about. Well, you know, these bars, what did they do when, with this sudden openness and then this, you know, police surveillance? What was going on there? How would people in the bars... Have Organized and even at the time, for people to have had the courage. I mean, you and me deciding that we're going to meet for a drink at night at some bar, we would know that we could tomorrow morning land in the newspapers, Interesting. you know, be arrested, spend the night in jail and land in the newspapers, and yet people still had the courage to go on. Yeah. So the 50s for me is, is this time of incredible repression, but also really remarkable courage and creativity. Yeah. And
0: did you always want to write about it and like illuminate the 50s through a murder mystery? Well, let's
1: see. The murder mystery part, um, that kind of came about through an interest in noir fiction. So, you know, my sense of noir, like, I read a lot of old pulp novels. Sure. And it's a, like a very nihilistic perspective. The world, the odds are stacked against me. The world's out to get me, um, you know if God is there, he, he ain't paying any attention to me. And I think for a lot of queer people, that's what life must have felt like in the fifties. So so getting into noir kind of led me in the direction okay. of, of
0: making it a mystery. Yeah, yeah, it seemed
1: like a really good metaphor for um, what I imagine life was like for people then.
0: Okay. And yeah. it was so interesting too, that Josie's asking questions to like get help to find her missing brother and no one wants to help her. And yet that's like unhelpful, but there was like an amazing sense of community too in that like solidarity.
1: Right. I really appreciate that you picked up on that. Yeah. Josie doesn't get any help because people coming in and asking about queer people, you're not going to give information about your friends to a stranger who dead or alive. Right. Who may or may not be helpful. Exactly. So I think there was a real sense of, of watching out for, for our own.
0: Yeah. I was so fascinated, too, by, like, the lack of labels in the book. You know, words like gay, lesbian, transgender, genderqueer mm-hmm. weren't used. Was that because they weren't used back then? Or were, like, did the words exist? Or were we just kind of, like, less, was gender and sexuality less defined? That's such a good question. So, in in many
1: respects, like, words like genderqueer and, uh, and, and particularly transgender were just not available. And I think the community of what was then drag queens encompassed a range of sexual identities that if those same people were living today some of them would identify as gay men who are drag queens some of them would identify as transgender women yeah but we hadn't that there hadn't been that level of of separation and so and yet there were there were you know men who dressed up as drag queens and did it as performance and there were people who dressed up as drag queens and lived their life full time that way you know so so we can see that people went about it very differently and um some of those men actually identified as women and today would likely identify as transgender but at that point it was there wasn't that there weren't so many options yeah although the the very first uh, what we call a sex change operation happened in 51 so um astonishingly so um it was beginning to be possible wow that's yeah
0: fair i'm surprised how like long ago that was yeah yeah. Oh, wow. Also, too, with, like, the lack of labels, there seem to be with the characters, like, all of them, like, a greater freedom to, like, express their gender and, like, the gender performance, almost. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. just haven't mm-hmm. read about that in a lot of books, like, the mm-hmm. way it was so nuanced.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, good. Good, yeah.
0: God. <laughs> God, yeah. <laughs> I also think, I mean, with the labels, like, it's it's stressful to find, like, now there's so many terms, be it, like, the common ones, but, like, bisexual, demisexual, pansexual, to figure out, like, where you fit, and then as you're, like, gender and sexuality evolves. It's like, oh, I gotta make the re-declaration.
1: Yeah, I gotta come out again. <laughs> I gotta come out again. I gotta come out again. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that was also part of my motivation. I was really curious, you know, um, if I had been... Born and if I was in my twenties during 19, in 1951, would I have had the courage to be out? Would why I have been one of those people who, you know, was totally closeted, you know, married to a man and was having an affair with the housewife down the street? Would that have been me or would I have been the big brazen butch who was defending bars? You know, who would, who would we have been back then when it was so much harder? You know, when, when, when it was so much
0: riskier. Yeah. We like people, I think like nowadays like love labels, you know, like they're almost necessary in culture. Did that influence your writing at all? Of writing with this like label-less time?
1: Hmm. Well, what I was really trying to get into was the experience. Okay. Um, and in particular, one of the one of the things that really intrigued me was, um, and I think you'll recognize this in the character of Mister Dodson, for example. What would it have been like to have believed everything they said about homosexuals at that time? Like, everything. You know, what What would my life have been like if I believed all of those things? If I had believed, I mean, even the word degenerate that they used. The word degenerate as a noun is one thing, but as a verb it means degenerate. You're going to gradually come undone, go crazy, fall apart, be an awful person, you know? And if you grew up really believing that, buying into that, what would life have been like? And then how is it possible that there were people who didn't believe any of it? They just managed, you know, to have the courage. We were talking about Jose Saria earlier, right. and he's a remarkable character. Um, his He grew up with a lot of support from his family, and from an early age, he was a boy who liked to put on dresses and prance around, and his family loved him and gave him the freedom to do that. And so, you know, there were these spaces of extraordinary
0: freedom, despite everything that was going on. Wow. Yeah. It was um, Mr. Dodds, and you mentioned, was like one of my favorite characters. Yeah. So sweet and, like, talks in paragraphs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we all know that person.
1: I'm so glad you're blaming that on him and not on me. <laughs>
0: well, it wasn't every character. <laughs> um, it was so fascinating, though, because he, like you said, was believing all the negative things that they say. Yeah. Like, he even, like, there's a recurring theme about, like, pedophilia. Yeah. Like, how has that always been an association?
1: Oh, that's a very, very good question. Um, why was homosexuality conflated with, with pedophilia? I don't know that anyone's unpacked exactly why, but it was a very good strategic move for anyone who was yeah. anti-homosexual, right? I mean, the worst thing is anything that threatens our children. Mm-hmm. So if homosexuals are, threaten our children, they are the worst thing. And these were the days of McCarthyism when, you know, the country needed someone to demonize and, and homosexuals became part of that and and for me that was exactly what i wanted to explore is like what if you really believe that about yourself? You know, how, how would you? And, and so Mr. Dodson becomes a person who is constantly watching himself for what he sees as, he sees it as the worst thing in the world. You know, he's terrified of it in, in himself. Um, but then, you know, I think we get to see a little evolution in his character. Yeah, as well. of course. Yeah.
0: Mr. Yeah. Dodson also like loves plants and is very knowledgeable. Is yes. that a passion of yours? It
1: <laughs> is. As a matter of fact, it is. Oh, really? okay. <laughs> and you know, the plant that becomes quite Significant in the novel, I won't give anything away. I actually have several of them. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, they smell beautiful at night. Okay. Yes, they smell watch beautiful at night. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Do watch out for that plant. That's a serious plant. <laughs> oh my god! Um, I mean, I think that's a good segue to talk about the drawings. Ah,
1: or, the um, prints. Excuse yes, me. that's okay. Yeah, drawings. They, um,
0: <laughs> the etching of Mister Dodson, just like that expression. Oh,
1: can you talk god, about like, you how, like how you made them? Well. uh, uh, my prints are, are lino linocut prints, so it's the same process as woodcut. You start with a smooth surface, draw your image on top, and then carve away anything that you want to be white.
0: Oh, I thought I saw carve marks.
1: Yes, yeah, they they exactly, they're carve marks. So it's
0: like it's like a negative almost. Yes,
1: yes, oh. yes. So you carve away areas, and and then you end up with a plate that has raised areas that you haven't carved away, and that's what takes the ink. So wow. when you ink that up, you can create an image, and that's why linocuts are tend to be very stark Dark, very black and white, very bold images yeah. because that's what you have to work with. You have black and white and you can create grays through some shading but for the most part they create beautifully graphic images.
0: Yeah, and all the black really like added to the feeling of the book too. Yes,
1: the yeah the the, the noir yeah. uh, feel of the time. So like Absolutely. for Mr.
0: Dodson, yes. I, I'm just curious like how you would capture that expression. Like was that a lot of takes? Like was that difficult? I have a favorite uncle who has a really beautiful smile. Oh, really?
1: And the funny thing about my uncle is he was actually um a new york city police cop on the vice squad oh really (laughs) yes (laughs) fortunately he's super supportive of me super supportive of all this and a wonderful wonderful warm and loving person um but he has quite a history and he has a beautiful smile so i i uh, i worked from a photograph of of my dear dear uncle jackie wow (laughs) Oh, that's great. It is great. How many takes did <laughs> it
0: to take to carve it, correct?
1: Uh, it did take, it t- took about, um, two or three. Cause the, okay. the carving technique there is really, is, is kind of challenging too, because you're using lines to create, uh, highlights in gray areas. So, so it, it, it takes a... Okay. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, and also we should note that the typewriter in the front is your... The typewriter your is print. my typewriter as well, yeah, uh, is yours. yeah. yes. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, wow. And is this like a free-form knife? Like what tool is that carving with?
1: Um... It has, uh, it's a handle that has a number of different nibs and the nibs have different, different shaped V's, like a very tiny one, a a slightly bigger one, a U and a larger U. So, you know, Uh they're, they're about that big, but they create different kinds of lines as you carve out.
0: Oh wow. How cool.
1: It is cool. It's really
0: fun. (laughs) Also, like in that time, there was such like a different like look and feel to like the clothing and like the atmosphere. It was nice to see like a, um, what was the top called? A coat, um, her shirt like a, not a petticoat um i don't remember the word for like her blouse oh, josie in the very beginning had a certain name that stood out to me
1: or no something, like something that. with the word coat oh uh <laughs> yeah oh, a, dress. Uh, a comedy yeah. coat dress and it yeah. Yeah. a shirt
0: uh shirt
1: waist, shirt waist. that's okay, it shirt waist
0: yeah Short waist <laughs> but i looked that up and i was like oh i know what that yeah, is yeah they have
1: those lovely buttons and then like flared yeah. flared skirt yeah it's very waist. now yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes. so um Fashion. What, I'm curious about like the kind of research you did Mm. because I would think this is a very undocumented time.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. So, um, when I was in uh, graduate school, I um, had had enough of books, and I decided I was going to do my research on the lives of older lesbians by interviewing older lesbians. So, this was um, a good twenty years ago, and I interviewed women who were who were out in the forties, fifties, and sixties. Oh wow! And asked them about what their lives were like, and so I've got I got incredibly powerful stor- and powerful stories. Um, one, for example, a woman named Bernie, very butch woman. During World War II, she was in the Bay Area working in um, the naval and in- uh, the uh, um, war industries. with so many men off to war, women were brought in to work in factories in a way that they hadn't for the most part before. So Bernie was on her way home from work one night. She was wearing her little work jacket. She had her ID on her cap. She had her little lunch pail. Um, But uh, she was picked up by the police, arrested for vagrancy. Vagrancy means no visible means of support. So her, her work badge should have protected her from this. But they picked her up because she was butch. They threw her in jail. The next morning, the judge sentenced her to Six months in prison and he said sentence suspended on the condition that you leave california within 24 hours because we don't want your kind in california
0: oh california yeah
1: california northern california this was in the bay area so uh bernie hightailed it back to wyoming very devastated and um tried to commit suicide by driving at night drunk on the wrong side of the road in the dark Um, from one town to another and only because it was such a rural area she didn't meet anybody she didn't get in a a car wreck and she lived to tell me her story wow so that was the kind of trauma that you know people lived through and then at the same time i interviewed a woman who said you know they said that we were all insane i knew i wasn't insane they said homosexuals are insane i knew i was uh, i was a homosexual and i wasn't insane so i knew they were wrong so you have, you know, you have both, both incredible like sides. <laughs> exactly Very, wow. very incredible, incredible. So, so those interviews, well, well, I don't tell the exact stories of any of the
0: women I interviewed. But Bernie stories in the book.
1: Yeah, a piece of Bernie stories yeah. is in the book. And I, and, and also just the, you know, other bits and pieces of their lives and their experiences yeah. are in, the, are in the book. And then I also, I read a ton. I read everything I could get my hands on. I'll tell you about one of my favorite books. Have you read The Secret Historian? I'm not. By Justin Spring. It's about uh, Sam Stewart. Uh, Samuel Stewart who in uh, the 40s, 50s was a mild-mannered apparently mild-mannered professor by day in Chicago. And by night, he was a sexual renegade. He had lots of sex, much of it anonymous, much of it with, uh, you know, groups, all kinds of gay sex, enjoyed himself immensely, all of which was incredibly dangerous at the time. He was also very obsessive. He kept uh, what he called his stud file, which was a set of index cards uh, (laughs) documenting every erotic encounter he had, including, you know, his his partner's uh, appendages, gifts, accessories, all that kind of stuff. And um, this was a very dangerous thing to do. At the back of the stuff file, he actually had a newspaper clipping from Texas of a woman who was jailed on the basis of her, her erotic diaries. So, just a diary wow. could get you, could land, an erotic diary could land you in jail at the time. So, he did keep the stud filing code. But um, very organized. But very organized, wow. yeah. So, he was he was a sexual obsessive and he was also a record keeping obsessive, which made him a wonderful friend for Alfred, for, for, for Kinsey. He and Kinsey oh. became friends and he became the basis of a lot of Kinsey's research um, about gay men. Kinsey wanted to know more about gay men. He was, a, he was a gay man who had lots of sex. So, he became the basis and he knew everybody. He knew, if you Google Gertrude. Stein mixmaster, you'll get a picture of the mixmaster that that Sam sent to Alfred to Gertrude Stein and Alice B Toklas. It was their gift to them, and they just loved it. <laughs> so he knew he knew everybody. Wow. So after he he eventually moved to California, uh, gave up being a professor, wrote a lot of the really early trashy gay pulp novels, then became a tattoo artist. He became the official tattoo artist of the Oakland Hell's Angels, which, as a gay man, was also a pretty dangerous thing to do wow. so he lived his life on the edge and died of at a ripe old age wow yeah so that was some of the research that i did and uncovered like all this fascinating history as i said of like a time of severe repression and yet people
0: living really rich full lives yeah. nonetheless yeah, um, when you're doing your graduate work, that was at Yale, by the way, we can brag. Uh, <laughs> um, how many lesbians, that sounds insensitive, how many lesbians, how many women did you interview? Oh, I interviewed 40.
1: Wow. I, I thought when I started out, I thought, and I was focusing on um, sort of the middle part of the country, the Rocky Mountain region, because at the time, most of the research that was going on was on the coasts. You know, it's much easier to find lesbian circles in New York, um, in, in San Francisco, in LA. So I was looking sort of in the middle, and, and I was Living in Denver at the time, and w- Denver was a center. So all the women from the small towns in Arizona, Wyoming would come for the weekend to Denver, wow. where they would where they would find each other. Wow. Yeah, like, yeah Well, how far is as there? And
0: talking to forty women, how like what recurring themes did you find throughout? Um,
1: Well, there were a lot of diverse, a lot of different experiences. One very powerful thing um, that I learned about, and this is partly how I got into noir fiction, is that um, in the 50s, astonishingly, there were an amazing number of lesbian pulp novels published. In 1950-51, Tereska Torres published the first, which was called Women's barracks about a World War II women's barracks, um, and it included a, a lesbian character, and it sold gazillions of copies, and was actually singled out by a um, a, a House uh, special subcommittee on pornographic literature because you know it had a lesbian character, it was therefore considered pornographic literature. But it sold so well that all kinds of other publishers of trashy pulp novels um, hired lesbians, but also plenty of men to write novels about lesbians. And most of them were, you know, the majority of them were pretty trashy, were written by men for the titillation of men. But there were some um, by women like Anne Bannon and Mary Jane Meeker who were written by by lesbians and for the time as best they could portrayed positive characters so a number of the women that I interviewed out here in you know boondocks of you know Wyoming or Arizona or Colorado went to their local five and dime and saw on a mag you know those wire racks that yeah. used to have pulp novels on them they saw a picture and there was a brunette and a blonde and there was an intense Gazed between yeah. them and said I need to read that and read that and yeah. said...
0: Ah! that's me and that's how they realized there were other women yeah. like that and Ann Bannon talks about like the covers being so important the covers because you can't like advertise lesbians you know right so it's like right. that uh, like the tension she talks about the tension yeah
1: exactly that's what it all they, that, yeah. th- those lurid covers captured that tension because you had to know from looking at it that there was something erotic going on between that women both for men who wanted to read about it and for women yeah. who were trying to figure out who they were very subtle yeah very subtle yeah <laughs> Some of the covers ain't so subtle, but <laughs> yeah, but they were, um, and they're, you know, some of them are quite beautiful, trashy art, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I love
0: that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Was Kinsey something that they were... A lot of the characters talked about Kinsey. Yeah. Was it something that was like a big buzzword? It was huge. Really? Huge. K-
1: Kinsey was huge. Because Kinsey came out, um, and it, first he did a study on on sexuality in the human male, and then on the female. And his his, um, his sexuality in the human male said a lot of different things. But among them, it said, you know, there's an awful lot of men who have erotic experiences with other men fair number of them go on to marry women and, you know, have children and all of that. But um, homosexual experience is part of the experience of uh, many more men in this country, many more men in the world than we ever thought possible. And this was in the 50s. This was in the 50s. Wow. So it let... One of the things it did... I mean, it sent shockwaves throughout the whole culture. But in terms of queer culture, it let people know there are more of us than we think. There's not just, you know... You know, a few people who have a mental illness. This is a population. This is potentially, um, you know, a, a civil rights group. And that's when that idea, at the same time, that's when the idea, the whole idea of it, of of queers as uh, a population that has the same civil rights as ev- everyone else came about because before that if you're sick people you don't have the right to any kind of yeah. you know. so that all of that Kinsey was a real important part of that whole cultural shift I did not know that Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing wow There's, well you know your last name is Masters have you been I was wondering are you re- you aren't related to this this sexologist no no Masters of sex. Masters of sex. I am not yes
0: okay we uh, we got changed in Ellis Island. It was oh, Mastriani, and it was oh, too Italian. Wow, that's yeah. a big change. <laughs> yeah, lot, yeah, like-
1: <laughs> that's a big change. So, anyway, but the sexologists at the time were really doing, uh, you know, groundbreaking work and
0: changing um, our lives. Yeah, wow. as a result. Wow, cool. And going into writing this, did you? How much did you know like ahead of time? Did you know like how the ending had to go? Like I don't want to reveal it but like you I know. knew nothing. I really? knew nothing.
1: I didn't know if I was going to ever finish it. I didn't know <laughs> if when I finished it it was going to look like a novel. I actually had to finish it. I said, you know, it looks like a novel to me. Let me give it to some friends and see if it looks like a novel to them. And I really I fully expected them to say, you know, this plot point doesn't work. You could drive a truck through that. Yeah. But they didn't. And really? uh, yeah, yeah. So it was my first novel. I didn't know what I was good oh at doing. And what I did is I um I just sort of invented character and they started taking on lives and i started writing it, the scenes that seemed important and then i started writing the scenes that connected the scenes that seen, uh, seemed oh, you important to write it just, in order. No not, no at, all. Well, well, not no. at all No not at all when you set
0: out when you started writing did you think I'm writing a book or were you just writing
1: Well i've always wanted to write a novel okay. that, that's the form that i love i love plot <laughs> I love thick, rich novels that okay. have lots of plot. So I knew if I was going to write something, it was going to be a novel. And so I just kept writing pieces and weaving them together and then figuring out what order they should go in. And it, and it, you know, eventually... Wow. Thank the goddess, it eventually cohered. It did.
0: So how long did you work on it then?
1: Well, I think it was about four years. That included the images, which took a while as well. At the beginning, it was very, now and then, you know, I'd meet every other week with a friend and write for an hour. And then after a while, when the narrative took shape, I got traction, and then I really wrote on a regular basis. But I was also working full time, meanwhile. So right. so it took a while. But it was a blast. It was it was really, really fun to write. You know when you're at a boring staff meeting and you just have to listen in, it's much more fun if you can think about what would be the right
0: adjective to describe, you know, him. Yes. <laughs> so it was very entertaining for me. Okay. Was it stressful at all writing these sex scenes? Oh uh, no, it okay. wasn't. I, I <laughs> Only asked because like the first one got kind of fairly graphic. Yeah. Um, but it was like it stayed sexy and I'm just curious how you write that without making it like cliche and funny.
1: Oh, there is that. There is that. Um well I guess I drew from my own experience. <laughs> And, uh, actually one of the nicest compliments I've gotten about the book was from a gay male friend of mine who said, you know, after I read that sex scene, I thought, I think I might want to be a lesbian. (laughs) It was that hot for him. So I was very flattered. Oh,
0: how funny. Yeah. Cool. I was looking too at your other art, like the uh, Mm -hmm. queer ancestors project. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. I, um. When you i mean I mean, I guess it 's better for you to explain, but like, there 's sure. no like documentation of a lot of like queer ancestors i hadn 't thought yes, about yes
1: there's i mean there 's certainly people that we know about but um, but there 's also there 's so many lives that people deliberately did not keep a record of, um, so the queer ancestors project I work with um, it 's a workshop where I work with queer young artists age eighteen to twenty six and we learn about queer history together and then they create prints. Uh, celebrating, documenting, dis- exploring their relationship to various queer ancestors that they identify. And sometimes these queer, ident- uh, these queer ancestors are people we know, James Baldwin, Zora Neale Hurston, um, Harry Hay, and so forth. And sometimes they're people that they imagine, just as I imagined these characters because I knew they had to exist. Yeah. But we don't have a record of so many lives. So many lives were not recorded. And that's especially true for, um, queers of color, uh, Queers who were what we today would call transgender. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of the records of their lives we have are police records because they, you know, the police, those are people police focused on. And so we don't have a record from their perspective, but we know they lived. We know they existed. We know they created lives for themselves. And so part of what I do here and what I encourage my students to do as well is to imagine the queer history that we don't have records of, that we're denied records of, and invent it because because we need to know it.
0: Yeah, and going off that, like I feel like the canon of like required reading in schools has changed like very little. It's always mm-hmm. catcher in the rye, it's always like Ethan Frome and Gatsby. Mm-hmm. How do like young readers find queer authors like you? Shows like yours? Okay. <laughs> 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 yeah, and just beyond like the like librarian being like, "Here, read this." I don't know how it happens.
1: Um, well, e- there are queer reading circles um here in Los Angeles. I hope I can remember the name of it because I want to plug them. Homocentric! Homocentric. Go to Facebook and you can find uh, Homocentric, and that's a queer reading circle. And even if you're not here in L.A., you can see what books they're reading. Um, and if you Google, you know, queer queer literature, and then there's also Lambda Literary. Lambda Literary every year gives out awards for um, queer writing in all kinds of genres and, uh, uh, you know, erotica, mystery, literature, all kinds of genres – and so they're also a great resource for for good contemporary literature. Cool,
0: anyway. yeah, cool. Well, thank you. What is um, coming up for you, like next? Oh,
1: well, I'm looking forward to writing my next novel. So I'm doing uh, research for that now. That's sort of how I start, um, in some way, like learning more about history. It gives me a framework for in which my characters can start to you know live and inhabit great. and develop.
0: So uh, another historical fiction. Yeah. Oh, without very cool.
1: a doubt, and it'll it'll be set in San Francisco, and it'll probably be a few years further on, like nineteen fifty three, four, five.
0: Oh, see how what funny. happens
1: there next.
0: Cool. Yes. And if people want to find more info about info about you, uh, katiegilmartin.com dot K
1: A T I E. G-I-L-M-A-R-T-I-N dot com. Yes.
0: All right. This was so much fun. Thank you. Thank you. you. Thank you so much, Jeff. This was a pleasure. Cool. Thank you. (laughs) All right, everybody. We will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on YouTube, on iTunes, and of course, at bookcircleonline.com. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I tweet from JeffMasters1. Thanks. From managing editor Jason Squamata, executive producers Maria Menounos, Phil Svitek, and Kevin Undergaro, we would like to thank you for tuning in to Book Circle Online. For more discussion, go to BookCircleOnline.com. And if you have comments, questions, or book title suggestions, write us at info at BookCircleOnline.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this is Book Circle Online. BCO, join the circle.